Hey, you're about to get smarter in just a few minutes with Curiosity Daily from Curiosity.com. I'm Cody Goff. And I'm Ashley Hamer. Today, you learn about how we get seedless fruit. Then you'll find out how to tap into the four pillars of learning to better absorb new information with help from cognitive neuroscientist Stanislas Stahan. Let's satisfy some curiosity. What's the deal with seedless fruit? I mean, plants make fruit to spread seeds. If they don't have seeds, how do we make more of them? The answer? By making use of something plants do already. It may surprise you to learn that plants can produce seedless fruit all on their own. The kind you buy in the store hasn't been made seedless through any genetic modification. When a plant produces fruit without seeds in it, scientists call that parthenocarpy. Because many people seem to like seedless fruit because it's easier to eat, farmers and scientists have spent a long time learning how to reliably trigger parthenocarpy. One way they do that is by keeping the plant from being pollinated. See, fruit starts as a flower, which usually needs to be fertilized by pollen from a fellow plant in order to produce a fruit. Flowers can fertilize themselves with their own pollen, but many plants have genes that prevent that. Mixing DNA with other individuals helps preserve genetic diversity and keep the species healthy, after all. If these plants do self-pollinate, the fruit will grow, but these genes will act as a kill switch for seed development. This is how navel oranges are produced. But wait, without seeds, how do you make more oranges? By borrowing a branch or two from a fully grown tree. Farmers will take cuttings from one tree and plant them in the soil, where they'll grow into a new tree, a process called propagation. They'll propagate enough to cover a whole field, basically creating an orchard of orange tree clones that will produce sterile fruit when they cross-pollinate. Parthenocarpy can also happen because of chromosomal imbalances. That means the plant producing the fruit has too many sets of chromosomes. For example, the bananas we eat come from triploid plants. This means that instead of having a set of chromosomes from each parent, they got one set from one parent and two sets from the other. Plants like this are usually sterile, so they also have to be propagated from offshoots, just like our friend the navel orange. This method can lead to genetic diversity issues, though, because, again, they all have to be cloned. In fact, if you were born after 1950, every banana you've ever eaten has been genetically identical. For watermelons, things are a little more complicated. Watermelon vines are kind of finicky and they can't be propagated. That means each seedless watermelon plant has to grow directly from a seed. Farmers achieve this by producing triploid plants, just like bananas. They'll mate a plant with two sets of chromosomes with a plant that has four which results in a sterile, triploid, seedless watermelon. So let's be honest, seedless fruits are genetic freaks, but they sure are tasty. Get ready to learn how to learn with some help from a world-renowned cognitive neuroscientist. Stanislas Dehan is the director of the Cognitive Neuroimaging Unit in France and author of How We Learn, Why Brains Learn Better Than Any Machine, for now. Yesterday, he told us about some things we've recently learned about how humans gain knowledge, starting with tiny infants who kind of act like little scientists in certain ways. Not all learning methods are created equal, though, as in sometimes we use strategies that aren't super effective in helping us absorb new information. So we asked, what is it that people are doing wrong when they try to learn and how can we fix it? Uh, you know, we all have to learn, but nobody taught us how to do it. So, uh, for instance, we have students spending a few hours in the textbook, uh, annotating, coloring the lines and so on before an exam. Is this a good way to learn? Well, it turns out
out that no, uh, this is not the best way to learn, and there are superior ways of learning. Uh, you cannot guess these things. You have to uh, attend to the science of learning. The main purpose of my book is to say, you know, there is a science of learning. There are pillars of learning that if we use properly, uh, we can gain a lot in our ability to learn. Uh, the four pillars of learning uh, that I draw attention to are, uh, first of all, attention, second, curiosity, third, feedback, and uh, fourth, uh, consolidation, especially through sleep. So if you learn to master these four pillars, uh, your learning will be improved. Yeah, sleep, we talk about on this podcast a lot about how important it is. So uh, talk a little bit about how important sleep is for learning. And what's the role of sleep in learning, I guess? It's surprising, isn't it, right? Because we, we think of sleeping as a period of rest where we don't do anything. Uh, but first of all, there is psychological evidence that if you've learned something during the day, you reach a certain level, you go to sleep and the next morning uh, you are better without seemingly having done anything. Well, the second piece of evidence comes from neuroscience is that, in fact, your brain has been doing a lot of processing during the night. The brain is actually very active during the night, and uh, what it does is it replays the information that it got during the day, except it replays it at a much faster speed. The same neurons are being activated in the same order, but sometimes 15 or 20 times faster, which allows the brain to rehearse the information many more times during the night than it was able to do during the day. So uh, you have a process of discovery of regularities during the night, of relearning, of consolidation of information. And um, if you do this night after night for several days, then you end up with a brain that has a much more efficient learning. Yeah, definitely. Um, Ashley is a musician, and I was a musician in college. I'm sure we both know. Uh, if, you, if you're sitting in a practice room and you practice the same thing, maybe for like an hour or two, and then you're not sleeping, then you're missing out on your unconscious kind of practicing the same thing over and over again too then, right? So it's, it's almost like you're missing like half of the uh, potential of learning that you, that you were looking at, right? Absolutely. In fact, uh, in the book, I often mention music training. I think music teachers have it right in so many ways. Uh, music teachers also know that it's completely normal to make errors, that errors are a normal part of the learning process. In fact, uh, errors are one of the major signals for the brain to learn. Uh, the brain generates predictions, and then it gets signals from the external world, and it compares the two. And if there is a significant difference, that's an error signal that the brain uses to uh, change its internal models of the world. So in this respect, errors are completely normal. In fact, there would be no learning without error. Uh, We need to stop treating error as a a notion that the child uh, was not learning properly. It's completely normal to make errors, and therefore we should not punish the errors. We should actually uh, reward the child and uh, consider the errors as an opportunity for more learning. This is exactly what music teaches. Do, uh, most of them at least. They are patient. They know that you need to learn day after day, rehearse, consolidate, use the error feedback properly. I think they are making use of my four pillars of learning. Again, those four pillars of learning are attention, curiosity, feedback, and consolidation. And Stanislas told us that teachers really need to emphasize that attention element by finding ways to captivate students. Easier said than done, I know, but There's a bonus tip for you if you've been responsible for educating your kids while schools are closed. I'm glad he brought up consolidation, too. I feel like we've told you why sleep is so important about a million times on this podcast, and I'm not going to lie, 
it's kind of nice when one of Europe's leading cognitive neuroscientists says it's important too. Again, Stanislas Dehan is the author of How We Learn, Why Brains Learn Better Than Any Machine, for now. And you can find a link to pick it up in today's show notes. All right, well, let's recap what we learned today. Well, parthenocarpy is when a plant produces fruit without seeds, and scientists and farmers have gotten really good at taking cuttings from one tree, propagating enough to cover a whole field, basically creating an orchard of clones that produce sterile fruit when they cross-pollinate. I think this is going to make everybody look at their fruit a little differently. I've definitely wondered whether seedless fruit was genetically modified or not. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but I couldn't figure out how they would do it normally. And yeah, it turns out it's actually way more basic. You don't have to take anything into a lab at all. So wait, does this mean that the bananas in pajamas are sterile? I mean, I don't think anyone wants to be thinking that about the bananas in pajamas. <laughs> of course they're sterile. <laughs> of course. And we learned that we need to learn how to learn by tuning into the science of learning. And the four pillars of learning are attention, curiosity, feedback, and consolidation, which basically means sleep. That part is super important. Yes. Sounds like people should listen to this podcast to satisfy their curiosity. They should pay complete attention to it, so don't multitask too much while Ashley and I are talking. Definitely get some sleep by consolidation and... Uh, and give us feedback on Apple Podcasts. I don't... Brought that one home. I don't think that's what feedback means, really, in this learning case, but I mean, I'll take a five-star review. Yeah. And <laughs> you know what else is important? Errors. Don't be afraid to make mistakes. Your brain uses error signals to change its internal model of the world. We'd never learn anything if we didn't make mistakes, which is great news for me. <laughs> I have a lot of experience making those. Today's first story was written by Cameron Duke and edited by Ashley Hamer, who's the managing editor for Curiosity Daily. Today's episode was produced and edited by Cody Goff. Join us again tomorrow to learn something new in just a few minutes. And until then, stay curious. Stay curious.